On this episode, we're going to get into the main characters of the book of Revelation. Hello, friends. Welcome. We are into the book of Revelation. We've looked at some frameworks for understanding it, some of the challenges, why it's hard to understand and easy to misunderstand. Last time we looked at the author, the audience, and the aim of the book. And now we're going to be getting into the meat of the book. We're going to be looking at the leading characters in the book. Who are the main characters in this story? The dramatic flow. What's the plot? What's unfolding in this book? And the outcome. What's the result of the story told in Revelation? And you know, if you haven't read this book, you really should read it to be able to get the most out of this podcast. Even if you don't really understand what's going on or you can't really follow it, it will be very helpful for you to read it first, have an idea of the story, and then I'll be sharing some things that you can take and test with the Lord. You can go and hold these things before the Lord, test them for yourselves, and see if you think this is what the Lord is saying in this book. But if you don't really know the storyline, like I said, we're going for very broad strokes so I'm not going to, to retell the story of Revelation and reread the text. So if you haven't read it, go ahead and go read it or go listen to it on an audiobook and then come back and this will be much more helpful to you. And as I mentioned before, uh, the scholar who's helped me the most in my understanding of this book is Dr. Kenneth Gentry Jr. So we're going to go for some very high altitude, broad stroke understanding of the book of Revelation. But if you really want to dig down and get into the details and go even deeper, I encourage you to look at Kenneth Gentry Jr.'s books at his blog. There's a series of talks that he did that's on YouTube that was super, super helpful to me. And so I want uh, to definitely recommend him as a resource if anything I mention stirs you up and you want to understand more about it. But on this episode, we're going to get into the main characters of the book of Revelation. And I want to look at four main characters. First, we're going to look at the bad guys. There are two bad guys we're going to look at, the beast from the sea and the harlot. And we're also going to look at two good guys. The good guys we're going to look at are the lamb and the bride. So let's start with these bad guys. Who are these guys and what do they represent? Well, we have the beast and he's the beast from the sea. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So, we have this beast. He's come out of the sea. He's got seven heads. He's got the power to make war, and his power has been given from the dragon. Now we know from Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 it says and he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So the beast is getting his authority and his power from Satan. Now Revelation chapter 17 verse 9 interprets 
part of the description of the beast for us. It says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So the beast from the sea is Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. It was called the city of seven hills. That was actually on their, their currency, their coinage, these seven hills. It was Its location from Israel would have been across this Mediterranean Sea. So this beast would have been, you know, if you were looking from Israel toward Rome, you would have looked over the Mediterranean. So it's a beast arising from the sea. It has the power to make war. This refers to Rome's unrivaled political power, their unrivaled military might. Remember when we looked at Matthew 24, we talked about the Pax Romana, this period in history where no one dared make war against Rome because they would crush any of their enemies. And it has this uh, wound on its head that we'll get to in a minute. But sometimes we have the beast being described with one head, and sometimes we have the beast being described with seven heads. And so the seven heads indicate the generic empire of Rome, and then the one head indicates a specific individual. Let's look at Revelation 17, 9 through 11 in greater detail. It says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So, if we overlay Roman history with this description, we get these seven emperors of Rome. Julius Caesar is the first, Augustus Caesar is the second, Tiberius the third, Gaius the fourth, Claudius the fifth, he's the one who has fallen, Nero, the one who is, and then the seventh was Galba Caesar. And he only reigned for six months. So it says when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So one of the key characters in history and in the story of Revelation is this sixth king, that is Nero. And here's something really fascinating about Nero's name. Nero Caesar in Hebrew characters adds up to the numbers 666. So this is the mark of the beast. And a lot of people have been worried about, you know, the mark of the beast and receiving the mark of the beast in our modern lives. But let's look at what Revelation 13, 18 says. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. And I have in the PowerPoint presentation the actual Hebrew letters that uh, add up to 666 that spell out Nero Caesar. You can Google this and you can find the, the images and how the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are assigned different number values. But you can go and Google that and you can see that Nero Caesar in the Hebrew language adds up to 666. And it's important to remember this because we want to go back to what we talked about in the author's intent, that John was not trying to hide things from his original audience. He was trying to reveal things. He was trying to uncover things to them. And 
we've gotten so far removed from the historical context, from the language of those people, from the culture of those people, that these things become more mysterious to us and more difficult to understand. But he's saying this calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number. And so in this very, remember we said that Revelation is perhaps the most Judaic book in the New Testament. It's a very Hebrew book. It's got tons of references to the Old Testament. And so in the Hebrew language, Nero Caesar is 666. And that may disappoint some people because that's not nearly as exciting perhaps as thinking, well, someday in the future, they're going to put microchips in our bodies and that's going to be the mark of the beast and um, all of those kind of more dramatic, more fearful interpretations. But I think once we begin to get a little bit of the historical and cultural context and what this book is really trying to communicate, I think we see that John is encouraging his people as this story unfolds, that you have this horrible emperor, Nero, was known as a particularly wicked and cruel tyrant. Nero was a bad dude. He reigned from AD 54 to AD 68. But there was a stretch of that time from AD 64 to AD 68, this 42-month time span, where there was severe persecution of the church. Um, and that is reflected in Revelation 13.5. That says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So that would be from 64 AD, June of 64 AD, to AD 68. And it's the season of severe persecution in the church. It's believed that uh, Paul and Peter may have died during that time. It was then when there was the, the fire in Rome, where Nero blamed the Christians for starting this fire, and some even believe that he started the fire himself to make room for his own building projects. But then he blames the Christians, and he has Christians crucified and burned alive, and he is just relentlessly persecuting the church and torturing people. And in fact, he's such a tyrant and such a horrible guy that the Roman Senate overthrows him, and he thought that the Roman Senate was going to execute him. And so he actually ordered his secretary to kill him when he uh, thought that the Roman Senate was voting to put him to death. And so he commits suicide, or he orders his secretary to kill him, and he dies. And this is what Revelation 13.3 is talking about, it says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And down in 13.12, it says the same thing, that this deadly wound had been healed. And Cornelius Tacitus, he was a Roman historian, he actually predicted the end of Rome when Nero Caesar committed suicide. It looked like the empire was going to fall apart and that it was going to uh, crumble apart, but it, it didn't. It actually revived and stayed together. And so that's talking about this mortal wound, that these different heads represent different emperors. And this emperor Nero, who's arguably the worst of them all, and is persecuting the church, and when he dies, it looks like the Roman Empire may fall apart. And Josephus, the historian we've mentioned before, Josephus wrote, it was unexpected that Rome could be delivered from such ruin. So everybody expected uh, that Rome was going to fall apart, but then it doesn't. And so there's this sense that, wow, there's this miraculous recovery 
after the death of Nero. And so perhaps it's more exciting to think that 666 is the number of somebody off in the future, that it's the microchipping, it's this or it's that. But in the context of what's happening historically, this is John communicating, unveiling things, revealing things to his current audience to encourage them that, listen, things are bad. This is, it's not good, but we're going to overcome it and the result is going to be worth it. And the other thing that we hear is uh, Revelation 13, 17. It says, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this is also a reference to what was happening in Roman culture, that to enter the Roman marketplaces, you had to offer incense to the gods and incense to the emperor. You had to engage in this cult of emperor worship, and you would offer your incense to the emperor and to the Roman gods, and then they would mark you. I I don't know Honestly, I don't know in detail how it would work, but in my mind, I imagine it like the Hindu worship, where after they do their worship at the temple, the Hindu priest puts the red mark on their foreheads. I imagine it was something like that, that they would go to the marketplace before you were allowed to go into the marketplace. You had to offer your emperor worship, your incense burning to the Roman gods, to the Roman emperor, and then you would be allowed to go into the marketplace and to do business. And so in that context, this book begins to make a lot of sense. Remember, these are things that should have made sense to the original audience. He wasn't writing to scare them, to hide things from them. He's writing things to reveal to them. And it's difficult for us to understand because we don't have that same historical context. We're not familiar with what was going on at that time of history, with what was going on in that culture. And so we we come up with kind of these wild projections that, oh, you know, we're all going to get a microchip and your credit card's going to be in your hand and all of these other things. Now, am I excited about letting governments around the world put microchips into our bodies? No, I think that's a bad idea, actually, and I, and I wouldn't participate. But do I think it's the mark of the beast? Uh, no, no, I do not. I think that this was written for a specific time about a specific person, and I believe the beast is the Roman Empire, and the seven heads are those emperors that I just named. All right, let's move on. Let's look at the second bad guy that we're going to be looking at, our second character of these four main characters. Let's look at the harlot. And remember, again, we're going for broad strokes, high altitude understanding. Let's look at Revelation chapter 17 from verse 3 to verse 6. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. All right, so we have a harlot. She's riding on the beast, same beast we just talked about, arrayed in purple and scarlet, 
adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She has a name written on her forehead, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations, and she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So if we put together a few verses in Revelation, this will help us understand who this is talking about. Look at Revelation 14.8. It says, Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And now look with me at Revelation 11, verses 7 and 8. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So if we put these verses together, we're getting several different names all describing the same thing. This uh, prostitute, this harlot who made nations drink, the wine of sexual immorality. So they call her the harlot. They call her Babylon. They call her the great city where our Lord was crucified. And that is Jerusalem. The harlot is Old Covenant Israel. The Jews that were in power were dependent upon Rome for their power. And that's why later in Revelation 17, the angel is explaining after he says, I marvel greatly, the angel says to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery. And he explains that the woman is riding on the beast, that then he goes on to explain that there are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come, everything that we just talked about. And so the Jews, we know, were dependent upon Rome for their power. Remember when they wanted to crucify Jesus, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They said, we don't have the authority to execute someone. We need you to do it for us. They were dependent upon Rome. If we look at Acts 17, verse 7, it says uh, the Jews are bringing an accusation against the Christians, and they're saying Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the Jews were stirring up the Romans to persecute Christians. So they were using Rome to oppose their own Messiah who came to them. They rejected their Messiah, and they used Rome even to put him to death. Now let's look a little bit at the description of this harlot. It says that she was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Look with me at Exodus chapter 28 verses 5 to 20. And I'm just going to go over this very quickly. I'm not going to read it word for word. But it's describing the garments that the priest was supposed to wear. It says gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined line settings of gold filigree, and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, four rows of stones, sardius, topaz, emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. And so the clothing of the priest is reflected in the clothing of the harlot. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. She's adorned with jewels and gold and pearls. And then look at this. In Revelation, she has a name written on her forehead. But listen 
to Exodus 28 when it's describing the priesthood and how they were supposed to dress. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So that's Exodus 28, 36, 38. And if we cross-reference that with Jeremiah 3, 3, it says, you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. And Jeremiah 3, 8, says, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And the description of the harlot in Revelation 17 says that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And this is what Jesus talked about when we looked at Matthew 24, that Jesus is woeing. And Matthew 23, verses 34 to 35 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Fill up then the measure of your fathers, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so remember the words that Jesus spoke, that this judgment, all the judgment from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah was going to come on that generation that he was speaking to, and that's who this is addressed to that this harlot who's riding upon this beast is Old Covenant Israel. And you see what happens later in Revelation chapter 17, that the beast that the harlot was riding devours her flesh and burns her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So this is Jerusalem, and it's a heartbreaking accusation, but it is the accusation of adultery. And remember, when we talked about the challenges of understanding Revelation, we talked about all of the Old Testament connection and all the Old Testament references, and we'll revisit this when we come to the the flow, the storyline of this book and what happens. But what should have been God's people, God's faithful wife in Israel, have become a harlot and a prostitute, and her destruction is coming. And in one sense, it's heartbreaking, but in another sense, for the believers who are being persecuted and harassed and tormented by Rome and by the Jews, it's affirming for them. It's, a, it's what Jesus said in Revelation 3.9. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This revelation that's coming from God to Jesus, to the angel, to John, to encourage the churches, be faithful. God is going to bring judgment against those people who are persecuting you, against those people who are harassing you, against those people who are tormenting you. And it's a word of encouragement for these believers suffering at this moment in history. And we'll talk more about this when we get into the plot and the storyline and the flow of the book. But for right now, we're going to stick with our main characters. So we looked at our two main bad guys. We have 
the beast, and the harlot. Now we're going to look at our two main good guys, and that is the lamb. And again, remember, we're just going for broad strokes. So I know we're going fast, but we're going to keep going. The lamb is pretty easy for us to figure out. If you've spent much time in church and sang many Christian songs, we know that the lamb is Jesus Christ. The lamb was slain and that he bought men with his blood. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And Revelation chapter 5 says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Then it skips down and says, You were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. So the lamb is Jesus Christ. He purchased humanity with his blood. And so that character is pretty easy for us to understand. We've, we've been able to keep up with that imagery of Christ as our Passover lamb, and it's referenced in other places, so we don't struggle too much there. The other image that's also relatively easy for us to understand, the other main character that we're going to look at is the bride. And the bride is, of course, the church. It's the believers. It's the faithful in Christ. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so the bride is the church. It's Christ's faithful people, the assembly of Christ's people, God's family. So we get this literary parallelism. And as we look at the broad strokes, this is helpful for us. We get an evil beast and a righteous lamb. We get an evil harlot and a chaste bride. We get the wilderness where the harlot is where versus the high mountain. We get the harlot who's in so many different colors versus the bride who's clothed in pure white. The harlot is displaced so that the bride can take her place. And that's what we're going to be talking about next as we look at the storyline and the dramatic flow of the book of Revelation. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. 